I draw a numbers because I like I like numbers always I like numbers I want to study something about numbers maybe finances and, and thinking in the future uh, I feel quite confident in numbers more than English most of my family is in Bolivia another my mother the main thing my mother is she's in Spain so it's difficult. She she came up frequently to see, but it's not the same, you know. It's, she always said me, you you know, I have a value. This is True Currency, produced through the Alternative School of Economics at Gasworks. I'm Ruth Beale. And I'm Amy Fennick. And we're artists whose practice is all about finding ways of learning creatively and collectively. Over this series, we're meeting a network of extraordinary women who are teaching us about feminist economics through their experience and ideas. In this episode, we take a look at unpaid work and the work mothers do that is undeniably valued, but not in economic terms. We're here at one of the workshops we facilitated with a group of mothers at the Henry Fawcett Children's Centre in Lambeth. The idea was to create some screen prints which represent the way women feel about themselves in relation to the economy and all the unpaid work that they do. We started out by talking about what happens under the water of the metaphorical iceberg. You know, Catherine Gibson's idea that we looked at in the first episode, this image that keeps coming back. I'm trying to draw a hand that maybe represents uh, uh, me, like maybe um, I uh, live with my mother-in-law and my husband, my kids, so I feel like I am the hand for everybody and that I have to be strong for everybody, I have to do, you know, like at home, then go to work, at the moment I'm not, but I used to go to work and take care of my mother-in-law, anything she needs. So I feel like I'm hand with her for the everybody. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but basically here is is me, <laughs> myself, <laughs> and me. <laughs> yes. For my children, I get love from them. They they give me hugs, kisses. That makes me feel happy. And from my relatives, just thank you. It's rewarding. It makes me feel that I've achieved something. I've helped someone, it's good. It's just the feeling that it gives to me. Whereas when I was earning money, yeah, I use it to pay the bill, but that's it really, it comes and it goes. I was a manager in a coffee shop for 10 years. I stopped working with uh, when my son came along. But then it's difficult too, you know, because you are at home. You, you do things, but it's not like, it's every day the same things. So do things like that, like these courses and activities is good because you get up, even if we are talking about motherhood and everything, but it's just to do something different. I really enjoyed being able to create a space with other mothers where we weren't just talking about our children. Yes, Ingrid, who was at the start of this episode, said that she really appreciated this opportunity to talk about her experience as a mother in political terms. Someone who's written extensively about the maternal experience is Lisa Baretza, Professor of Psychosocial Theory at Birkbeck University. Her work was introduced to us by Andrea Franca, who you heard translating in episode two. Part of Andrea's work as an evaluator of this project meant that she attended some of the workshops. And after taking part in some of the discussions we were having, 
she suggested looking at Lisa's work, which is all about how we experience time, and that this might be a way to think more about motherhood and economics. The Department of Psychosocial Studies is unusual. It's not the same as a social psychology department, and it's not a straightforward sociology department either. In fact, it is a department that has been set up by a group of us who came out of social psychology, actually, in order to try to think more carefully about the relation between the psyche and social life, and very much using psychoanalysis as a a way to think across those two realms. Psychoanalysis, also obviously feminism and queer theory and post-colonial theory, in order to think about internality and externality and their relations. And I came to academia quite late at the point that I had had my own children and was working at the time therapeutically in a service for mothers in psychological distress, particularly mothers who had had very adverse childhood experiences of their own and was sort of wanting not to repeat the experiences that they felt they'd had as children. And I was very struck by a phrase that these mothers used over and over again, which they talked about having children saving their lives. And it led me into an area of feminist theory in which there's been a real struggle to think about what a maternal subject really is and whether something new is provoked, if you like, in psychically and in the social life of women when they have children. A very contentious area in feminist theory because the female subject has been much theorised, but actually the maternal subject hasn't. So it's actually quite hard work philosophically and theoretically to um, open up a way to understand the kind of subject position that a mother is, that is made anew or born anew through the encounter with this thing that we call a child. It's funny thinking in abstract terms like this about a child. I really connected with Lisa's writing on motherhood when we discussed her work in our book club. This sense that being outside of things is just experiencing things differently, experiencing time differently. Yeah, it's been really useful to have a reading group alongside making this podcast to get to grips with some of the themes and ideas. So the first book I wrote, which was called Eternal Encounters, The Ethics of Interruption, deals with in some ways, the temporality of motherhood in terms of a subject precipitated by interruption or by being thrown off the subject by another and having to constantly right oneself or somehow get back on track or back to one's thought or back to the contact one was trying to make with the world. Which is the, the psychological impact, isn't it? I think that's what I found so interesting, that you're not just talking about the condition, you're talking about the impact that then that has on the individual as well. That very intricate relation between what motherhood does to us psychologically or what we bring to motherhood, or indeed motherhood as a way to articulate that bridge, that place that is both social structure and experience. And that articulation comes from Adrian Rich, you know, from the mid-1970s, someone really trying to get hold of that way that motherhood itself is this peculiar kind of fulcrum or position of experience that seems to be particularly tender to both its structuring and to being a very, very powerful internal reorganisation of the self. That's really interesting in relation to some of the workshops that we've done. So we did workshops with mothers at a children's centre. You know, they're very direct experiences and the difficulty of the work and the challenges they face, but ultimately... 
you know, it being born out of love and this experience with, with their children and that kind of conflict and, you know, those things rubbing up against each other. Rizzi Kapaka wrote a very good book called Torn in Two, which is about maternal ambivalence. And I suppose that constant uh, struggle to hold intention or hold together both our loving and hating impulses towards children. And also to be positioned as figures that are both loved and hated in such extreme ways, socially, politically, culturally, working that line of what love and hate as it comes in and as it goes out is really, really hard work. It is really hard work. It's really difficult also just talking about loving and hating your child. And that's exactly what Rizika Parker's work is about. Through Lisa, we found out that she's one of the few people who talk about that seesaw of love and hate that exists in women's experiences and their feelings towards their children. It's something we feel like we're not even supposed to think. To understand some of these quite complex theories in practice, we spoke to Claire, a mother who came to the workshops. We made this collage, so the theme was sort of the work that we as parents do that goes sort of unnoticed sometimes and um, and obviously unpaid. Um, so I just thought about how I was feeling at the time and um, how like my family life is. It feels like sometimes there's a lot of um, high expectations to be like the perfect parent. I'm Claire Summers. I'm on maternity leave, which actually just finished on Monday, last Monday gone. Um, so now I'm on my annual leave, which is about six weeks. So for the past year, I have been a new mum for the second time, for my second son, Ashley. So oh, my first son, Leo, is uh, five and he's going to school. So it was quite nice, actually, that I had that year with Ashley while Leo was at school. This is a bit of a crunchy, like, <laughs> financial question, but, like, how do you manage it financially in your family? You know, you've, you've been on maternity leave, your partner's oh, working. Very, very difficult. This year for maternity leave was a, a real struggle. Gosh, I... You know, I just don't... We, we survive, like, day by day, week by week. It's hand-to-mouth, because my pay was slashed in half, so it's cut in half for this year. So I asked for it to be all added together and then divided up to 12 months. So that equaled my pay to be halved. So the bills can be paid, you know, like the gas, um, the rent. But then it doesn't leave so much for the food and that and stuff, so it's very hard. Mm. <laughs> so, but I'm going back to work soon, and um, I have to pay for Ashley's nursery. But I'm entitled to some um, childcare element of working tax credit, but I don't know how much yet. So, it's hard for mum. It's hard for parents, mums. With the finances. What's your job, your sort of wage job that you oh, go um, to? So I'm going back as a community nurse, which was what I was doing before. Um, I've been a community nurse for about four years. Who does what in your household? <laughs> in my house, I think I do everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, mostly. If if I ask my partner, he will. Um, yeah, maybe he maybe he will do uh, what I'm asking, like put the children to bed, feed the children. He really doesn't like feeding the baby though. Being a mum, it's 24 hours. I organise the two children's lives completely, um, as well as my own. Do you feel like the roles were the same before you had kids, or did having kids change them? No, I think I was always in that role of I'll do the tidying and the cleaning and cooking and you'll be the man and... Because mm. we both worked, we always both worked, so I can't even say being a man works. Mm. I think the lines are blurred with the man's job, but I think still the women... It might be changing, but this is just in my life, I guess. Mm. And I have seen men that will do a share. I think children have made it more of a concrete that it's my role. For myself, I can leave things and, okay, don't organise it, it doesn't matter. But with children, if you have to organise something because if you take them out, you have to have something to take them to. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And then, or organise something with, with their friends on the weekend or to keep them entertained or you've got to know what you're cooking for dinner because you know that they're going to be hungry. Mm. For me, I mean, I can just have some ham sandwich for dinner I mean mm. it wouldn't really matter but they can't have that and you have to you know do the shopping you can't have nothing in the cupboards you have to have that medicine cowpaw so when they wake up three in the morning with a fever you have to have all these things you have to think ahead I can totally identify with the work she's talking about there and those gender roles they're so strong and difficult to pull away from especially in my experience as a mother of young kids. Lisa told us about Luce Irigare, who was a philosopher who looked at gender, language and identity. Apparently, some of her work has been misunderstood as essentialist, this idea that there are innate qualities to women. Actually, she was looking at the ways language and culture create the idea of the masculine and feminine. I asked Lisa if we needed to think about gender normativity, how people stick to or reinforce gender roles. I suppose for me, again, sort of working at a more theoretical level, the feminine, through Irigaray's work, did that work. The feminine helped us to think beyond the masculine-feminine binary, to think femininity as something that is excessive to that binary and upsets that binary as an ontological issue. It proposes that femininity is the name for what is excessive to the masculine-feminine or the male-female binary. Okay, it's the name for something else. It's the name that exceeds, by definition, that binary thinking. And I think that's where you find an, an articulation, an imaginary, a kind of way to understand, I suppose, you know, the myriad of non-normative ways that, in fact, we all live our lives as well as the ways that we are structured by norms. And so it's not, I think, about putting anti-normativity there as a way to counter normativity. All you do then is you rebuild binary. It's about trying to understand figurations, that is, kind of articulations, imaginaries for what radically upsets the binary. Then lived experience, in a way, begins to have some sense. Lived experience is already going on as lived experience, but 
it is readable. It becomes legible in certain kinds of ways through those theoretical formulations. That's where, I suppose, Judith Butler's work has been so important in helping us understand the actual almost mechanism by which norms get in and what we do with norms and how we might use them against themselves. But that lies, again, in a slightly different position to the idea that we just need to live anti-normative lives and that somehow, if we do that, we'll be able to disaggregate and solve all of these intractable problems, actually, around care and labour and time, you know, that we're discussing. But in a, in a real-life way, I think that's one of the things that's so shocking when, as a woman, when you have children, and you, especially in those early days, and you're thrown into this situation of looking after this small person and you're thrown into this this binary role this gender role it's shocking how powerful the norm is shocking how you're interpolated by the child that the utter dependency of the child comes as such an enormous shock so just recapping because lisa said a lot there so judith butler is a queer feminist scholar who really questions the belief that certain gendered behaviours are natural. And she says that what we're really doing is performing these roles. And I think she's right. But Lisa's saying that subversion or just being anti-normative doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Having a baby means the needs of this tiny person sort of take over and that actually reinforces those care roles. It's interesting that your job as a community nurse which is another caring role. Yeah, caring role, yeah. And, yeah, so we wondered whether you could talk a bit about why you got into nursing, but also how how it differs from the caring role that you have, you know, with your kids and the caring role that you do sort of for your family. Yeah, I became a nurse before I had children, so I started the training before I had my first son. But the reason I went into it is because... um, you know, at that time, I was about 25, and I thought at that point I, I realised being ill is um, really terrifying sometimes, and I just wanted to ease their um, journeys, you know, when they were in the hospital. You know, it can be really scary, not knowing what's happening, or and to care for somebody, it's quite of a privilege to be able to ease that even if it's just for a little while. So that's why I went into nursing. But, and, I, and I do love nursing. It's different to being in the caring role of your family. And I think it, it is emotional, nursing. You have to have this emotional strength. But looking after children or, or family is different. You have ties to them, I think. You have that... Um, instinct in, inside you to just do it no matter what it's sort of it's like a part of you isn't it um, when you're looking after your child when they're upset or going to do something scary you can feel it as well so you would do anything to sort of ease that for your children so it is different mm. do they both feel like work or like what, maybe some things feel like work and other things don't feel like work? My nursing professionally can feel like work, but a lot of the time it, I feel great when I you know, finish seeing a patient and you've helped them for that hour that you're there 
and they're home. And you come out thinking, oh, because sometimes that's all they see, the nurse, all week. Mm. And you think, at least I can spend that time with them. So in that respect, sometimes it doesn't feel like work. Sometimes it is hard work if you can't get something for somebody and you're really trying that hard and you think you just get frustrated sometimes. And then being a mother, um, <laughs> yes, sometimes it does feel like hard work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know, some people would disagree, but having a baby, I love having a newborn baby, but then as they grow up, it feels to me that it gets harder because you have to say what you want them to do over and over. They get really distracted very easily. You have to explain what you want them to do. And I think for me, it takes a lot of emotional... um, And I get emotionally tired at the end of the day. Mm. Rather, not physically at all. Just emotionally, I feel drained. And and then I sit down for about nine o'clock, I'm able to sit down and the house is peaceful. And it's like, I feel like peace has descended on the house. And I think, oh, wow, that was hard. Can we talk about time? Because we've been, in in making this podcast, we've been talking to lots of different women about feminist economics and thinking about the work women do, how it's recognised, how it's valued, and, and how women and mothers are themselves valued and recognised, but how there might also be other ways of thinking about society that draw on this. And we found your work on time really interesting, both as explanations or ideas about women's experiences, but also about the the work and the labour and how this sits sort of in relation to capitalism. And so in thinking about feminist economics, the, the two models of time, in a way, that you have maternal time and care time sitting alongside capitalist time <laughs> or the time of finance. Could we talk about maternal time and how it's experienced differently? Mm. It's a difficult thing to... There are some pitfalls as we go through a set of arguments about what we mean by maternal time and the time of care generally or time that can only go at the pace of the other and that we tend to associate with female time and with a kind of set of practices that entail enduring, unfolding time. Some of the pitfalls, I guess, have to do with the ways that one would want to, if you like, honour at some level the history of the ways that certain forms of care time have been assigned to women, and not just to women, but especially to actually to women of colour, and now to women in the global south who come to the global north through these care chains and so on. So there's a way in which one might want to figure a form of time related to care in the feminine in order to honour that history. We can't pretend that care gets shared out equally. At the same time, I think we need to take great care that we don't sort of re-essentialise women's time. There is actually socially no reason why women should spend more time caring than doing other forms of labour, so-called productive labour. I have a couple of contributions I suppose to make to that. I mean, one is I think what I write about in my second book, Enduring Time, and about time that comes to matter to us, and whether the time of mattering is produced through forms of repetitious labour, 
that can be maternal, but they can be all sorts of other forms of repetitious labour. And there's a question about whether we want to de-gender the time of mattering. But inside the discussions about social reproduction, you know, the time of the reproduction of the neoliberal worker, for example, is there a way in which one would want to separate out different forms of care. And I would suggest for strategic reasons, we do want to actually maintain some kind of analysis of gender in there. I hear you that we need to not be talking about this work as women's work. (laughs) I suppose what we have seen and experienced from what we've been seeing is that it just is more likely to be done by women in a professional or work way, like you say, more likely to be done by women of colour from the global south. So that's where it becomes an issue that concerns women. I suppose on a personal level, I love what you say about mattering and the repetition that comes to matter. I suppose it gives significance and um, purpose to the work that can seem pointless which maybe brings me to an idea about work and labour and and historic ideas about how some work has been seen to be valuable and some has been seen to be sort of worthless. Yeah, I mean, I think there are famous philosophical debates that we could reference, de Beauvoir and Hannah Arendt being two key sort of figures where the difference between labour and work tries to get teased out exactly along the lines you're saying whereby some work comes to have value and significance because it leaves something durable in the world it makes something and other work is seen to be less valuable because it's repetitious in such a way as it supposedly produces nothing and I I don't think that the argument needs to be that actually the repetitious work really produces something. I think all you do then is you produce more of the same discourse in which, you know, productive work makes something that matters. And what you want to do is disaggregate that and think instead about how what is, instead of produced, I would use the term generated, what is generated out of that are often affective engagements that do come to matter to us and have a certain kind of endurance or duration to them. And it sort of moves us away, I suppose, from even the question of value. You know, I think that that there's something about wanting to interrupt a kind of economic model that doesn't mean we have to return to some kind of milky, washy (laughs) sort of set of feelings versus somehow the, the world of finance, as you put it before, but means that we rethink what value means, I suppose. This idea of rethinking value is interesting in relation to an economics where value isn't necessarily about productivity. We asked Claire whether she felt valued in her different roles. Yes, I do feel valued in different senses of of each thing I do. I do feel valued as a nurse, very much. I feel valued as a mother through my children, but the results are extremely slow. I can see my children are happy and they feel safe and secure. So that, to me, I'm doing okay. And that makes me feel valued. For them to feel happy and they're not worrying about things and they're just sitting there playing or, you know, content. I feel valued as a nurse differently because I feel like I'm... I'm working for my country. I don't know if that sounds a bit weird, but... You know, for the public, for the people, 
that makes me feel valued because I feel like I'm not looking after the public, a tiny miniature percentage of the public. But we obviously, we all know we need more nurses and I feel like I'm doing my bit mm. in that sense. Yeah, it has a really clear public value, doesn't mm, it? Yeah. But like, parenting does too, but it's... But I don't think it's that. seen as much. I don't think it's seen hardly at all, actually. Yeah, that's the kind of crux of, mm. of what we've been talking about in terms of, you know, the economy and, and women's relationship with mm. work. You made a description of the mother who, or the the woman, the person who works full-time and the, they are paying someone else to do the care of their children, um, but they will be time-stretched versus the person who might be doing that work, looking after their children, who might be Skyping their, their own child in South America to, to parent them. And that person is also time-stretched. And I liked how there's not a judgment there about who's doing the right or wrong thing, but there's an impossibility of that work still needs to be done and the time still needs to be taken to do that care. Yeah, I mean, we're very differentially structured, even though one might want to say that everyone is stretched. We're stretched in different ways and to different degrees. So to acknowledge that, I think, is really important. But I suppose there might be the need to make a distinction between care, and I hate to use this word, but I do. It's a word that matters to me, which is the time for love. The question is not so much who's going to care for the children, but who is going to love the children. So if we pause that, if we try to make a differentiation between the, the labour of care that can somehow be bought and sold or speeded up or done by a machine or whatever it is, and some other quality of experience that, that is embedded in care, and that I think is very helpful to remember that what that really means is that one might choose to offer love at a point where the other is at its most vulnerable, that is, is open to violence. That is a better description, actually, of care. It's the gesture of love in a situation in which somebody is vulnerable to both receiving love but also receiving violence. Are you talking about that as a dysfunction? That would be a dysfunctional situation where somebody received violence instead of love? Or are you talking about that as an everyday situation? I think that's an everyday situation. I mean, I, I think that when we think about the care, the kind of care that you're talking about under the term the maternal. So if you use the mother-infant dyad as a paradigm for a certain form of care, whether it's actual children or others we come to name and claim as children or however one wants to understand what a child is, I, I think I'm saying that the time that I'm talking about that is trapped, if you like, that we can't release easily through the delegation of care, the sharing of care, is this particular kind of time in which something like love needs to come to mitigate the potential for violence. And that is a particular kind of time. That, that's the argument I would make. It's, whether it lies outside of capitalist time, I would be hesitant, but one could say, using Elizabeth Covinelli's term, it sort of inhabits the seams of capitalism. Can I quote you back at yourself? So you talk about modes of waiting, staying, delaying, enduring, persisting, repeating, maintaining, preserving, remaining. These are all effectively dull or abdicate temporalities. They have none of the allure of the time of rupture, shift or change. Is it that kind of work that you're talking about 
it's not just labour. Yes, that's right. It's not just labour, although it involves labour, for sure. I've been trying to tie together forms of time that I think are suggestive of this kind of care that I'm talking about. What I've tried to articulate is suspended time, that is time that appears to refuse to flow or can't flow, it's stuck, it's the, the time simply of endurance, of sitting something out. And I suppose I'm interested in forms of care that inhabit those forms of time. We asked Claire whether Lisa's ideas about those different modes of time resonated with her as a mother. And it's really struck a chord with me as a different kind of time than going to work or having a job in the way that it starts and ends and and yes. that kind of the way that time sort of opens up in a weird way sometimes. With children. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, all of those things are quite spot on actually, with being a mother. It sounds like you've totally experienced all of that. Yeah. You can I think to that. endurance is a great one because sometimes I do feel like I'm just sitting there in, enduring, just be patient. And you have to sort of keep yourself so patient and, um, you know, endure the constant, or even ignore the child ignoring me. And I'm saying, go and put your pyjamas on. Go and put your pyjamas on. Go and put your pyjamas on. <laughs> patience, patience. Or sometimes if I'm cooking and he's he's behind me, sometimes I'm just, you know, standing there chopping and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what this picture looks like because the baby's sitting there in the high chair screaming because he's probably hungry. Leo's behind me chucking all the fridge magnets all over the room. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting there chopping, I'm thinking, I really would love to see what this picture looks like. And I'm thinking, just take it in and be patient. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. So, and I look back on it and I do laugh because it is funny. At the time I'm thinking it will be funny in a week, but at the moment it's really not funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's funny how intense it is in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> how do you feel like that being a mother has changed you? Uh, it's definitely made me a lot more patient. I think I've got the patience of a saint now. <laughs> <laughs> I was so impatient before and I used to get really angry very quickly, but um, it's definitely broadened my mindset of of life, even just down to the labour, actually. <laughs> when I first gave birth, I thought, after you know he's, he came out, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I just can't believe that happened. It was just, in that night of, of the labour, it's like I transitioned from a girl to a woman. <laughs> Seriously, because I just ha hadn't got a clue what to expect and it just changes your world. I can't... Um, you're not important anymore. You're, this other life is, you know. If, so it changes your, your perception. perception of yourself yeah. a bit. And it's... It's that idea that you are in relation to this other thing now. I feel like I'm the only person here to look after these people, these two people mm. on earth. Do you think that the maternal experience is itself radical and transformative? I think that it can be 
But more than that, I think theoretically, there is a political project in making that claim. At the level of lived experience, motherhood can be drudgery. It can be a form of imprisonment. You know, it can be the reproduction of the same. And we come to motherhood in such a variety of ways and in such a variety of conditions that it would be ridiculous to generalise about that. But theoretically, there is a project, I think, and it links in some ways to Hannah Arendt's sort of project around natality in making a claim that to speak from the experience or the position of experience, that is motherhood, is a radically political gesture. And one that I think is, because it is a maternal gesture, is deeply related to this question of beginning again or making something anew, the question of generativity, which Arendt would say is, is what politics is capacity to speak in public space of something that hasn't been spoken before, that is to create something new. So I think that there is that potential, but the gendering issue that puts women in particular, or those who claim an identity as women, into a relation with that particular form of politics, that's where the reverberation is and that has to do with the absolute persistence of the binary really in the way that we think and i think that's where in some ways transgender becomes a really really fruitful and important contribution and way to make some kind of intervention there in the same ways that i suppose queer scholarship did maybe over the last 20 years it's really interesting how lisa's theoretical thinking about hannah arendt's idea of natality that each birth represents a new beginning, makes connections with what Claire said about how she felt when she became a mother for the first time. This fits with Hannah Arendt's philosophy on freedom and plurality, not freedom being about choosing, but about beginning, so starting anew. I love the idea of this kind of sticky point in theory, this reverberation that we don't want the binary, but at the same time we have to acknowledge that something happens here socially and psychologically. I can see Lisa's point about there being a political case for theoretically exploring the potential politics of motherhood because I think through making those connections you can start to understand your position. And have agency in it maybe? Yeah, and I want to take away this idea that realities of motherhood, you know, like the really touching and honest experiences that we heard from Claire, whilst they're not universal they really are political and I think that's something worth paying attention to. Yeah and the fact that we absolutely cannot assume any singular experience and that's a major part of the intersectionalism we've been talking about in this series and that's something that's important to feminist economics as well. Yeah and in relation to that this idea of rethinking what we value or what value means and that reinforces many of the ideas that we've come across in making this podcast. So how the economy needs to shift into a structure that is much more interdependent. Something we're going to explore more in the next episode. For more reading, take a look at our extra resources, a list of texts and links which expand on some of the topics we talked about in this episode. You can find this at www.gasworks.org.uk. True Currency about feminist economics, produced by Amy Fennick and Ruth Beale from the Alternative School of Economics, with sound production by Lucia Scatsocchio from Social Broadcasts, and commissioned by Gasworks and supported by the Paul Hamlin Foundation and Arts Council England.